0: good morning again. Let me, um, let me begin first with Honest Moments with Aura. Okay, we're going to have Honest Moments with Aura. This is my ninth year of regular preaching, and I've been a pastor for whatever, however, many long. And this Sunday is the hardest Sunday to preach, because I know you all are here, but I know you all are tired, right? I can just tell you're tired. Maybe you're anxious about how your kids are going to react after this time, losing an hour of sleep. And it sounds like you're doing fine at the moment, but you never know, right, <laughs> this week, how it's going to be. So I hear you. I see you Uh, i i i received that and i know that maybe you're you're uh, a little fatigued this morning but i'm glad you're here and you made it with us even online if you're watching online i remember this week is I can tell the best joke, and and this is the week where nobody laughs, so it's okay. It's okay. We'll make it through. This is also a great week, however, with spring break because, like, you can go to the grocery and you're done in 20 minutes, right? It's Purdue and West Side spring break. You can, like, decide last minute to go out for a meal, and, like, you don't have to wait forever. So it's not so bad, right? This week, you know, if if you didn't make it to Florida this week, I'm sorry, but... um, you're here with us today. So yeah, praise the Lord. It's, it's all good things. Um, it's the third Sunday of Lent. And as if you're on this side, you can see, if not, you can catch it later. Uh, we started with Ash Wednesday with dust. Uh, I'm sorry, with ashes as a reminder of our uh, uh, need to repent and turn to God. And then we moved to dust in the, in the first Sunday, of uh, a reminder that from dust we came and to dust we shall return, and last week we talked about bread as God is our uh, provider, and, and we uh, can trust in Him to provide in all things, and bread as a symbol of that in Scripture. And today we have water. Oh, a big old heavy jug. We got water today. We're going to talk about water, and when we talk about water, we talk about thirst. What are the things that we thirst for? What are the things that satisfy our thirst? What are the things that we pursue that satisfy our thirst or think that will satisfy our thirst that don't? And what does scripture, what does Jesus call us to pursue to satisfy that thirst that we are longing for? So just like bread, there's a million passages on water. We're not going to jump around. I'm going to look at one passage today that talks about water and thirsting and what that looks like. Uh, And it's in John, John chapter four. If you want to get it ready, we will um, take a look at that in a moment. But to begin, I want to talk about names because names are important. Names have power. Names can have influence over things. Place names are important. Uh, Certain cities with names are tied, of course, in scripture. Those names have significance. The names of people have, have significance. I want you to think of a city like Chicago. Chicago. I love Chicago. I love going there. The name Chicago, the way you say it, right, if you're from that area, Chicago, right, it's like that's, it's good. It would be different if it was like Scranton, like now, that doesn't have the same, you know, you know, if Chicago is really named Scranton, it'd be like, that's not so fun, right? Like, I want to go for a weekend in Chicago. Yeah, no one says I want to go for a weekend in Scranton, right? That's not as exciting to say. Something about that name, it's a powerful name. I like that. It's like, hey, that's a good name. New York, yeah. Cities have great names like that. Like, yeah, I'm excited about that. A good name is significant. A good name gives us an understanding of so- what something is, And what something means. In the Old Testament, when you read place names, uh, a lot of them had some significance to them, where God interacted in some way with the people at that place. People's names are important. Saul becomes Paul. His name changes after he encounters the living God. Name changes are significant. And names can actually be used in a negative way, too. So think of situations when somebody's bullying another person and calls them a name. That's a way to exert control over somebody by calling them a name. And so names have this sense of power that we can hold over others. Passages in Scripture have names. So if I say, hey, do you know Luke 10, 25 through 37? Most of us would go, "Uh, let me look it up. But if I said, hey, do you know the story of the Good Samaritan? You say, yeah, oh yeah, I know that one, right? Because that passage has become the Good Samaritan. We just call it by that name. That's what it is. And, and, and that is a name that's actually transcended even Scripture. If you go to Cincinnati, there's Good Samaritan hospitals, and um, someone is a Good Samaritan if they help somebody out in a moment, blah, 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 all those things. Well, I want to talk about another name today. John 4, 1 through 26 has traditionally been called the passage of the woman at the well passage of the woman at the well, and it's this well-known passage where maybe you've heard it preached. Jesus and this woman have an encounter at the well, and Jesus catches her off guard about her sin and all these husbands and all these things that happen, and and she goes away knowing that he's the Messiah and confesses all these things, and we go, oh, this is good. This will preach. This is a good passage right here. The problem is that's not what that passage is about. See, we've taken this name and we've taken this idea and we've placed it on something, and we've missed the point of this passage. And so we need to relook at it again, because that name doesn't do us any favors. It's not really about a woman at the well. It's about something more. And John actually helps us in framing what this passage is about. So I'm going to propose to you a better title, a better uh, name for this passage than the woman at the well passage. Let's call it a Samaritan and a Jew meet at a well. That sounds like the beginning of a joke, but it's not, okay. Um, But a Samaritan and a Jew meet at a well. That's what this passage is about. That's how John frames it for us, the interaction between a Samaritan and a Jew who did not like each other, who encounter each other at this public space to talk about God and what they're thirsting for and what that means in their life. That's what this passage is about. That will lead us on the correct path, I think, because it's not really about a woman who has had five husbands. It's not really about a woman trying to run away in the middle of the day and the hottest part of the day. It's about a Samaritan and a Jew that meet together and what happens when these two different worldviews about God collide and how we can point to the living God who gives us living water in that moment. So, I'm going to read this whole thing. It's very long. If you want to follow along or you can just listen, it's John 4 1 through 26. And I invite you to hear it again for the first time, not through the framing of male and female, though there is something to that, and we'll talk about that, but through the framing of how John presents it to us a Samaritan and a Jew that meet at a well. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not John who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. In fact, is you have five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And uh, as we consider this living water that you offered this woman at the well, and how you extend to us that same offer to drink deeply from you, that we may not thirst for anything else again. Open up your word to us. Teach us this morning. Holy Spirit, convict us where we need conviction. Lead us to repentance where we need to repent. Lead us to joy as we see your face this morning, that we gaze upon it. In your name. Amen. So we're talking about being thirsty for water, which is akin to a spiritual thirst that Jesus talks about being spiritually thirsty. And when you're spiritually thirsty for something, you're longing for something that might fill a hole inside of you. You're desperate for truth and grace and mercy. When you're spiritually thirsty, the Holy Spirit can act in a powerful way when you're thirsting for something. I imagine a lot of us came to know the Lord at a time when we were spiritually thirsty. When we were wondering and asking and waiting and, and having questions about who is this Jesus person? Who is it? Or maybe when you were a kid, if you came to know Jesus as, as a kid, in that moment you were thirsty for something. Who is this God that everyone is talking about? What does this mean? So to be spiritually thirsty is a, is a good thing, I think. It's a good thing. And it's something that can be quenched. But the question is, what do we quench that thirst with? What do we quench that thirst with? Jesus wants to know if the Samaritan is thirsty. Is she ready to hear about the transforming power of God through the Holy Spirit? Well, let's begin. Verses 1 and 3. Uh, oftentimes we hear of people running away to something, and sometimes this woman has been said she's coming in the noon of day to run away from something. But if you actually read this passage, you'll see that Jesus is the one running away. All right? The first part of this passage, it tells us too many people had heard, the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing more people than John. In other words, the Pharisees are afraid that this Jesus guy, his word is actually making a difference in people's lives. It's actually transforming people. He's actually baptizing people. And then John has this note. Well, actually, it wasn't Jesus. It was the disciples, but never mind. So, but here's Jesus on the run. He's like, all right, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to head up north. And he goes north about 60, 70-ish miles, depending on where he was going to ultimately end up. So about here, from about here to Indianapolis or so, maybe a little further. He ends up going north, south to north, through Samaria to get out of there. Now this, according to John's gospel, this is after he's already flipped the tables in the temple and made the whip of cords and gone through in this way. So according to his gospel, that's what he's saying there. And so he's on his way out. He's like, I'm out of here. I'm heading this way. So he chooses to go through the land of Samaria. He chooses to go through the land of Samaria, which is, uh, he could have gone around Most Jews would have avoided that space, but he decides to enter through this land of Samaria, and it was the fastest way, although Samaritans and Jews did not usually associate as it is. And so what's the big deal between Samaritans and Jews? Well, it starts about 600 years ago, from this point in time, not from now, but from this point in time in the scripture, where the Jews were living in Jerusalem, were captured by foreign armies, and some of them were sent away. Some of them were sent out, but some of them stayed back, and some of them went into the foreign lands. They began to intermarry with foreigners, and many who had stayed back considered themselves different from those who had went out. And they called those who had gone out half-breeds or half-bloods or less than us. It's kind of a similar situation if, you know, my, my family, we immigrated here when I was two years old, and I have family back there, so I grew up in a very different culture here than my family has grown up back there. Kind of similar, except we weren't, well, That's a long story. Anyway, kind of a similar idea where you integrate into a different culture. And so these Jewish Sumerians had integrated in a different culture than the Jews who were just in Jerusalem. And it reached the point where they had some uh, 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 anger toward each other, some frustration toward each other. Jews, they considered themselves the descendants of Abraham. They did not adopt the, the religion of the people of the land. They worshiped in Jerusalem. They read the law, the Pentateuch. And they considered Moses the greatest prophet. The Samaritans, they partially adopted the religion of the land some of them had. They worshiped at Mount Gerizim, a different place. They had their own version of the law. It was called the Samaritan Pentateuch. They considered Jacob the greatest prophet and father. But they both had something in common. They were both anxiously awaiting the Messiah. They both knew a Messiah was coming who was going to answer their questions, who was going to make things right for them, who was going to rule and reign. And so here they were waiting, both Jews and Samaritans, though they were often hostile toward each other, they were waiting for this Messiah. And so travelers going south to north would avoid Samaria, but here's Jesus deciding to go through this place. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize this too much, but I think there's something to be said about Jesus going through a place that nobody wants to go through. And considering the significance of that, not just going around, not just taking the easier route, not just finding comfort in where he was, but going through the place where most people said, don't go there. You don't want to be with those people. You don't want to associate with those people. Perhaps we might consider the places or the people or the locations or the areas that we have chosen to go around rather than go through. And maybe Christ is calling us to go through those places, to interact, to engage, and to be with those people. So I'm just going to leave that there for us. And so he's on the run, he's leaving, he goes through Samaria, he approaches Jacob's well. Jacob from the Old Testament, this well dug by Jacob, stands the test of time. It's about noon, the hottest part of the day. The Samaritan woman is coming to draw water, and water, of course, was crucial life back then. This is a desert culture. It gets a little more greener as you go north, but ultimately a desert culture, desert people. And so water was necessary. It's the difference between life and death. It was one of the most, if not the most, important chore you could do was to get water for the household so you could drink. And it's still the case today. We need water to live. We have been created to need water. 844 million people in this world still don't have access to clean water. 31% 31% of schools in the world don't have clean water for kids to drink. Think about that. Over one in every four kids don't have clean water. 840,000 people die each year from water-related diseases. And globally, 2 billion people people—two billion people, drink water from a contaminated source, meaning they need to purify their water before they can even drink it. And yet water is crucial. It's this important thing. It is vital. Scripture talks about it as vital for life. It's a life-giving image throughout all of Scripture, that water is necessary. And so this, Jesus asks the Samaritan, can I have a drink? So she's not surprised by that, but she is surprised that a Jew is talking to her. This person who generally they don't get along with is asking her for help. What? And it starts as a conversation just about regular old drinking water, of course, well water, but it turns into something more, spiritual water, thirsting for something. To spiritually thirst is good, as I mentioned. And Jesus even tells us, Sermon on the Mount we mentioned already, hunger and thirst for righteousness. There are some things that are good to thirst for. Righteous living, right living before God. So here's a question for us. If Jesus came to the church in America, what would he find his people thirsting for? What would he find his people thirsting for? Would he find his people thirsting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out among us? Would he find his people thirsting for more of Jesus? Would he find his people thirsting for relationships with each other? Would he find his people thirsting to go into difficult places, into the darkness to shine the light? Would he find his people comforting others who are hurting? Or would he find his people just satisfied with well water? Would he find his people just satisfied with the comforts that we have, that we've created, that it's all good? Let's go about our days, no problems here. The churches in Africa, and Latin America, and Iran, and North Korea, they're thirsting for more Jesus. They're hungering and thirsting for him, for the Holy Spirit to be poured out among them, that there might be a witness in dark places. May we have that same thirst as our brothers and sisters there, to thirst for those things as well. Jesus asked the woman, are you thirsty for water? Yes, and I'll give you some living water that you can drink. Well, what does he know about living water? Do you think you're better than Jacob, who dug this well for us that's been lasting for 2,000 years? My ancestors and their ancestors, we all drew from this same well. Are you better than Jacob, you Jewish man? And he says, well, if you drink from this well, you'll thirst. But if you drink what I'm going to give you, you'll never be thirsty again. And boy, does that sound great. You know, if I lived in a desert and I had to rely on going to water, if I could just never be thirsty again, that'd be wonderful. Think about the times when you're the most thirsty. Running a race, not that I run, but if you run, right? You imagine you're thirsty there, working hard, moving people's furniture, if you've been helping move people recently. We thirst for things. We thirst. We get thirsty, and here comes Jesus. You'll never thirst again if you drink from this. He's talking about spiritual thirst, and it takes a minute for this woman to get there. She's not quite there yet in understanding this. And so he's going to reveal a little more. He reveals himself to her and who he really is, but he kind of does it in this weird way, which is how we've kind of misunderstood this passage. This Jew and, this Jew and Samaritan had never met before, and the first time they do, Jesus knows something about her, that she's had five husbands, and he uses his divinely given knowledge to reveal himself As the Messiah. Now, just as a brief aside, the woman at the well has been thrown under the bus over the years, just to be blunt, as, hey, here's this terrible person. She's had five husbands, blah, 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 blah. We don't know the situation. We don't know what's going on. We don't know if these men all divorced her, and she's just been doing what she had to do to survive, to make it through. We don't know if she had kids. We don't know anything about her, so let's not read into it too much. What's important here is that he's not here to convict her of her sin. That's not what he's trying to say in this moment. What he's doing is he's trying to reveal himself as the Messiah. And this is how he does it. He knows something about her that nobody else could have known, especially this Jew passing through. And so she kind of gets it. She's like, oh, you're a prophet. Oh, we've had prophets before. I can see that, sir, now. Because you told me something about me that nobody else would know. But that's not quite right. She's still stuck on this idea, though. Hey, uh, I'm a Samaritan. We worship at Mount Gerizim. You're a Jew. You go over there. We'll go about our days separately in different things. She's stuck because she thinks God can only work in, in one way. The Samaritan was stuck in thinking that God only reveals himself in certain places. So I have to be in that place. But then Jesus fully reveals what's going on here. A time is coming and has now come. So talking about himself, I'm now here. where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. We'll worship the Father in spirit through the work of the Holy Spirit and in truth. Not bound by a location, not bound by a place, not tied in to uh, ancestry or past or ethnic identity or any of those things that we always want to try to separate us from others but we'll find ourselves together in spirit and in truth because that's the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. It's not about being here or there. It's not about this altar or that well or that city or that mountain. True worshipers worship God in spirit and truth. The question for the Samaritan woman was where can God be found? Can he be found at the Mount Gerizim? Can he be found at the well? Can he be found in Jerusalem? And Jesus' answer is, God is finding you. God has found you. God has come to you. True worship centers around Jesus Christ. True worship is not found just in a building or a book or a set of practices or other identities. True worship is found in the inside-out transformation of the individual who draws near to Jesus and draws near to God the inside-out transformation of spirit and in truth. Jesus is the place where we meet and worship God. Jesus, the perfect image of the invisible God. The Samaritan woman is on her way to a well to get water, and she encounters this Jew named Jesus that tells her a time is coming that the living water of God will be available to all people. In fact, the time is already here. And it's here now for us that in Jesus this living water is available to all to quench the thirst, to change the things that we thirst for, whether that was power or money or prestige or whatever it might be, to, to turn us to desire greater things in the kingdom, to desire Jesus. As Becky already read this morning, Isaiah 55, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without cost. And without money, oh, to, to an invitation to all people. Those who don't have, come and drink from Jesus. Those who, who feel like they don't have enough, come and drink from Jesus. Though, those who have no money, come and drink from Jesus. Come and receive from Him that which endures, that which sustains us. Isaiah looks forward to that time when the Messiah comes. And now the Messiah is here among us. Jesus is here. And He invites you this morning to drink from Him to stop drinking from things that don't satisfy, but to drink from him in all you do. Are you thirsty for that living water today? Are you thirsty for God's transformation in your life, to give you freely through his son Jesus? Are you thirsty today? Come to Jesus. Come kneel at the cross. Come gaze upon this cross. Come gaze at his face that he might reveal himself to you. All who are thirsty, come and drink without cost of this living water. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this encounter that you had along the way with this woman who asked questions that you revealed yourself to as the living water. Lord, for the things that we thirst for in the season of Lent that we need to repent, reveal those to us that we might turn from them Stop thirsting for them. Stop thinking that will satisfy when they don't. May we turn to you, the living water, and develop in us, Lord, a thirst for you, a hunger for your word, a hunger for you, Jesus, a, hunger, a thirst for uh, finding you in all things and, and being close to you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that extends to us even in our unknowing, in our doubts, in our uncertainty, in our struggles you generously and faithfully and patiently walk with us. So as we change our thirst to things of you, may you patiently still walk with us. May you extend your loving grace to us. May we gaze upon your face today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.